Good morning. Good to see everyone. Hey, a couple things before we get rolling. Uh, the first thing right off the top uh, is that anytime I ever see a chair open in this place, I think we need to invite somebody to church. You know what I'm saying? Uh, is that part of what our job is, is to find anyone in our lives that doesn't have a home church, that doesn't have someone to love on them, to care for them, someone that's not able to, to hear about the gospel, able to hear about uh, teaching in scripture. By all means, we are supposed to go out there and love on them and invite them in. One of the most loving things you can do is make sure that you bring them along with you. So if you are actually a visitor invited by somebody, that's an honor to you because that means that they're able to bring you into more of a private space that is personal to them. So, wow, great on you. That's awesome. Uh, so I would just encourage all of us, this is a perfect time of year to start inviting friends and family to church because uh, of the subject matter. We're talking directly about Jesus and what he did for us. Uh, it's very tailored. Uh, as we swing around the new year, all of this, it's not just Christmas Eve, not just Christmas services, but any of those times, it's a great week to invite somebody. Um, and then the, uh, the other thing is I have some great news for you and I want to share with you good news. I, I found out this is kind of what I do. Whenever I have good news, I always make sure that I'm the one that gets to share it. Whenever that's like guest speakers, I'm just like, I don't know, there's nothing to share. And then I hold on to it until it's me, right? And so anyway, I just realized that this morning, how awkward. Um, so let me, let me just share a couple things. One of the things is that this congregation is incredibly generous. Um, you are very, very giving, very, very sacrificial in, in different things. I want to give you kind of an update as to what's been going on. You know that whenever you uh, give to the church, all that ends up filtering out into ministry in a variety of ways. Sometimes that's benevolence and helping people. Uh, but in the Christmas season, we give a couple other other opportunities for you to share and to give, right? So out in the lobby over the last three weeks, and we're doing it again this weekend, but over the last three weeks, we've had about eight ministries represented out there to take care of someone during the Christmas holidays. So what I wanted to do is let you know how that's been going on. I wanted to find out what happened in week one. I wanted to find out what's happened up to this point, uh, knowing that we're not quite done with it, but I just kind of wanted to give you an update. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to hold our clapping till after number four. Right now, I got this down to a science, right? I've already done this a couple times. Uh, we got to hold clapping because after number four, there is good and still need. So, but the first ones, take, take a listen to this. In addition to everything else that's going on, um, one of our ministries that we were supporting were kids in foster care supported by uh, Christmas gift cards. Week one, 42 of the 66 were sponsored. As of now, all 66 are sponsored. Second ministry, Youth in Homes for Teens, sponsored with Christmas gifts. Week one, 27 of the 38 sponsored. Now all of them are sponsored. Number three, the Angel Tree Ministry, Children of Inmates. First week, 84 kids sponsored. Currently, all 165 sponsored. Number four, gift cards purchased for newly arriving refugee families. Week one, 17 were purchased. After week three, all 38 were purchased. Now you can clap.
Amen. This is what I'm, this is what I'm talking about, but it's, we're not done, right? So number five, entire families from First Street School being sponsored. Week one, 12 families sponsored. Currently 16 are sponsored. We need 10 more sponsored. Uh, ministry number six, Bridgeway families. Uh, those here that would go, man, I don't have a whole lot this Christmas season. The first week we didn't have any because we didn't get the word out. And so, uh, by now, six families have said, wait a second, I'm on that list. And so five of them are sponsored. We still need one more to be sponsored. The seventh and eighth ministry were supported by, if you go out there and see at the table, there's like wall art. You've seen that. And then the coffee that they're selling, um, and some of the art pieces. The way that that works is that it's supporting two different types of ministry. One is specific to Haiti. The other one is orphan care throughout the world. So the way that it works is all those were donated that 50% of all the proceeds would go directly to missions. 9,000 bucks has already come in. You understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, praise God for that, right? Because we're, we're in a season where there's a lot of demands. It's one of those weird things uh, that we've kind of created this culture that we're kind of forced to be nice to each other. And we're kind of forced to hang out together. You know what I mean? That's kind of the Christmas groove. And all of a sudden we have all these expectations on us, even in the midst of all those demands, even in the midst of a building campaign, even in the midst of just normal giving and sacrificial generosity you all are taking a look and making sure that people are loved on that don't have a lot. Uh, I always share with you uh, every year why this is so important to me is I remember a time when we needed to go to our church. We didn't have a lot of money. I remember getting a wrapped gift and getting a food basket. I remember what that was like for my family. At that time, we went down to, I was going to school there. We went down to a place called Bethel Temple on uh, Howe Avenue. You remember that place? By Hubacher Cadillac. Man, that's going old school there. Uh, that ended up becoming a place called Capital Christian. Maybe you've heard of that. Uh, so back then, I remember just not having a whole lot in a Christmas season. And I just want you to know that growing up as a child that received something like that, I never forgot it. And what it did is it sparked in me a desire and a need to give out to others. So when you have supported families like this, you have no idea what you're setting in motion. So thank you, thank you, thank you for such a wonderful generosity. All right, let's dive right into scripture. Why don't you take the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and we can begin. We are in part 89 of our Being Jesus series and I entitled today's message, Counting the Cost. And I want to talk about cost for a moment. Uh, first thing, let me ask you a question. How much does marriage cost? What I didn't say is how much does wedding cost, right? Now, wedding is already expensive. That's kind of the upfront fees, right, of marriage. But you all know that, that marriage costs a lot, a lot more. I have a kind of a, a funny story about that. Has nothing to do with a message, but I think it's funny. Um, I'm listening to sports radio the other day. Um, and that's kind of what I listen to a lot. You'd think I'd be more intelligent about it. But anyway, uh, I'm listening to sports radio and these, and this guy was talking about his buddy. They were both in the NFL and he was telling, he was talking about his friend. He said, he said, let me just say that my friend is not gifted in the looks department, right? He said, I'd give him maybe a three or a four. It was super funny. So he's hassling his friend. He said, now he married, uh, like Miss Montana, 
back in the day. And he said, and he ended up, she would wear like these bright red outfits, like these leather outfits. And he said, uh, so he bought her a bright red Rolls Royce to go with her outfit, right? And he said, so my dad comes into town and my dad was known as Big G. He said, my dad comes into town and he's looking at my friend going, what are you doing? What is wrong with you? This is all this flash. And he's like, what is the deal with the bright red Rolls Royce? Almost like it could not be more gaudy, right? And, and the guy, he goes, my buddy looked at my dad and he goes, Big G, there ain't no romance without finance. <laughs> So anyway, I don't know what marriage costs to you, but there might be no romance without finance. You know what I'm saying? So all I'm saying is that it's costly. Yeah. Uh, whether that is the idea of all the things that are involved in just being together and spending time together, whether or not that's uh, gifts, but it's just there's a cost to it. There's the hard cost and the soft cost to all that. So why are people still getting married if we know all that? Because I would say that uh, the majority of, of us would say it's worth it. That's why we do it. Uh, what about kids? How expensive are kids? Dang, right? Uh, there's, uh, if you don't have insurance, you'll find out how expensive it is to have a baby. I'll tell you that, which is super expensive. Um, but what we give to our children, what won't we give to our children? You know what I'm saying is that we're always sacrificing. The cost is so incredible. So why do we keep having children? Because we would say that it's worth it. Let's go to something that's not even in the same ballpark. What's your house worth? Right now, some of you are going, well, after 2007 and eight, <laughs> it kind of went down. It's rebounding. Praise the Lord. What's it worth uh, to be a homeowner? It costs a lot. Why do you want to be a homeowner? You'll say, well, because I would say that a majority of your monthly cost goes out into a house payment. So why are you willing to pay such a high cost for a home? You'll say it's worth it. All right, so something even tinier. What about your car? Paying a car payment every month. That's expensive. Maintenance, stuff like that, oil changes. Why are you doing that? Because it's worth it. Okay, so on all these things, we have counted the cost, we've looked at the perceived value, and we said it's worth it. But what happens when something's perceived value is no longer worth it? What if the cost exceeds what you're willing to pay? What happens then? The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. True freedom costs our lives. True freedom costs our lives. You're saying, well, Lance, are you talking about militarily? I could be. I'm currently talking about surrender to Jesus Christ, but I know what you mean. True freedom costs our lives. What if true freedom from addiction, true freedom from sin, true freedom from all types of chaos and drama in your life is surrendering to Jesus and following him wholeheartedly? Are you willing to pay that cost? Or are you thinking that's too high of a cost because freedom is not that big of a deal? I want to talk about a story today where the cost exceeded the perceived value. And it has to do with Jesus on trial and Peter's denial of his Lord. This is a tough message in some respects. I hope to end it with some of the glory of Jesus Christ and some hope. But I would love to make it personal and connective. Understand this as we begin. Uh, last time we were together, you learned that Jesus was, uh, what, betrayed with a kiss. 
He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're all horrified. Peter tries to hack a dude's ear off. Y'all remember this, right? And then uh, they bind Jesus and they lead him away to his first of many trials. As you go through the trials of Jesus, they're very, very hard to figure out the chronology. So we're doing the best that we can. Um, all the commentaries say this is really hard. Nobody quite knows how it works because the gospel writers were not interested in strict chronology. They were more interested in theme. So putting it all together, if you're a little Bible nerd and you see error in my order, I get it. I understand that it's wrong. I think that we're trying to get the heart of it to be able to grow off of it. So let's go ahead and dive right into there. Comes out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll combine those together, throw them up on the screens. It begins like this. Then they, the officers and soldiers of the Jewish leaders, seized him. They seized Jesus and led him away from the Garden of Gethsemane. First, in a religious trial, they led him to Annas, bringing him into the high priest's house complex, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. All right, anybody lost? Yeah, probably. All these dumb names. Let's just admit they're lousy names. All right, so whatever, we'll try to keep them straight. Here's kind of what you need to know to get started. The Jewish people live in a religious culture. We do not. I know that a lot of people think we do. America is not a religious culture. Now, we, there's some times that we were more of a religious culture. We're just not right now. Now, I remember being in Israel in 2011. It's still a super religious culture. Now, when you talk to the folks... It feels very secular. It, it, it's almost like a lot of the people that you meet, there's not a lot going on inside, but their culture is still highly religious. So for example, we had a, a day free and I just wanted to go wander around and look at a bunch of different shops. Problem was it was Sabbath. The entire nation shuts down every week. That's crazy. I mean, talk about all the revenue they're missing. They don't care. The whole entire thing is religious. They shut down their entire nation for a whole day. And it's totally inappropriate. They're getting ready way early. I thought, wow, it's a long time till sundown. doesn't matter. They do all that for a religious observance, whether they believe it or not. Huh. The Jews have always been a hyper-religious culture. God built them that way. So the leaders in their communities are religious leaders. But let's remember the world situation. Israel, at the time of Jesus, is an occupied territory. They are not the bosses of their own world. They are owned by the Roman Empire. Therefore, they're only allowed to do certain things because their boss, the Romans, get to tell them what to do beyond that. What it, the way that it works is that they would go into their religious leaders to find out of self-management, and then if they needed something done legally, they would have to submit that person to the authorities, the Roman people. Now, that means Jesus had to go through multiple trials. He had to go through a religious trial, then he had to go through a legal trial. That's why it expands it out so long. We're going to begin with the religious trial, and he goes to the high priest, now, here's what's confusing. If you go into the Old Testament, you realize 
There can only be one high priest and he's supposed to do it till he dies. So when all of a sudden it starts going, well, this is Annas, he's the high priest. And then he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. You're going, what? That's not right. Here's why it's not right. Rome. The Jews wanted the high priest to be forever. But when you're a leader of the Jewish people, you're a political figure. Rome said, I don't like that guy. Get rid of him. They said, we can't get rid of him. He's for life appointment. Well, we're the boss of you. We said, get rid of him. So they would switch out high priests. The Jews didn't know what to do with that because they're going, well, you're a high priest forever. So now we got a bunch of them, right? How does that work? So when you read these accounts, you're going to find out two guys are involved in the trial of Jesus, both called high priest. One is a father-in-law, the original guy, and one is the son-in-law. All right. That's kind of where we're at. Now, just because John thought it was so cool, he mentions it twice. He says a phrase, Caiaphas, the son-in-law, is the one who said it was best for one man to die for the nation. Do you remember that story? Happened in Luke, uh, it happened in John chapter 11. Here's how it went, in case you don't remember. Jesus was getting popular. He had just raised a guy from the dead. His name was Lazarus. Now, when you raise somebody from the dead, you get popular. I don't know if you've noticed that. You should try it. It's awesome. And when you get super popular, you start getting a big following. Remember, the Jews were very nervous about any big movements rising up because if they make Rome nervous, Rome will shut them down. We know historically that just after Jesus, 40 years later in AD 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. That was always hanging over their head. They knew the situation was so tenuous that they can't do anything wrong. They don't want any rioters. They don't want any uh, insurgencies. They don't want any revolutions. And now all of a sudden you have this charismatic Jesus guy raising people from the dead, walking on water, doing crazy stuff, and they start freaking out. We've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to do something. Everyone's going to go to him and then Rome's going to get mad and they're going to come and take our nation away from us. And we got it and they're all panicking. And Caiaphas said, guys, hold on a second. You have no idea what you're talking about. Here's the reality. It's better that one guy die and we keep our nation. It's better for one man to die and save all of us. Well, how prophetic was that? He had no idea what he was saying. God had him just like Balaam's donkey say something he didn't know what he was saying and he said something incredibly powerful it is better that one man die than everybody else jesus christ died for the sins of the world so prophetically he spoke that out john went man i remember that that was so cool i have to write it down twice all right that's what they just said now let's pick up the story simon peter y'all know him simon peter followed jesus at a distance now, why is he at a distance? Because he just chopped the guy's ear off, and that's not popular. <laughs> you chopped an ear off of the guys that are hanging out with Jesus right now. They don't want you around. So you follow at a distance. And so did another disciple. Who's that? Well, normally, when John writes that, he means himself. That's how he writes about it. So most scholars think that it's John. What's weird is the next portion. Because John shouldn't be that connected to the religious leaders. So could it be possible that it was Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea? They were disciples of Jesus. 
And they were the ones that got the body back from Pilate. They're the ones that got him ready for burial. Do you remember that? These guys are Pharisees. Maybe it was one of them. We don't know. But take a look at what happens. Since that disciple, whoever he was, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. The high priest Annas then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching, probably theological questions. Jesus answered him, hold up. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have never said anything in secret. In other words, guys, I've been very, very public. There's no secret agenda. There's no insurrection being risen up. I've always been very public. Therefore, why are you asking me to defend myself? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, to a non-Jew, we're reading this. To a non-ancient Jewish population, we're reading this and we don't understand what he's talking about. They all knew exactly what Jesus was doing there. What was he doing? He was asking for due process. Here's why. In the ancient world, especially in this part of the world, there were very strict laws, especially for the Jewish people on how trials must go. The way that it works is you are not to have to defend yourself without someone testifying against you. Jesus is saying, hey guys, I understand what you're trying to do here and I know where I'm headed. I know I'm going to the cross. Here's the problem. You're doing it wrong. You're drawing me in here and you're trying to ask me all these questions as if I need to defend myself and you have not brought one witness against me. This is bogus. This is a kangaroo court. This is garbage. This isn't how it works. I know how it works. I'm a good Jew. You're a good Jew. Well, let's figure this thing out. But high priest, you're doing it wrong. Can we just get this thing moving? Because I know what needs to happen. Well, somebody noticed what Jesus was doing, because look at the next line. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. He just slapped Jesus across the face. He knew Jesus was correcting the high priest. And he thought that was dishonoring. Saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why are you hitting me? In other words, no, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm telling you to follow procedure. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, the guy who hit him is thinking probably in the back of his mind, Exodus 22.20. Exodus, uh, excuse me, 22.28. It says this, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, y'all, I've read your Facebook posts. Some of y'all violated Exodus 22.28. All right, all right. You do not curse a ruler of your people. Now, I'm not saying that you don't stand for truth. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying you don't be nasty. You understand what I'm saying? That's all I'm trying to get across. This guy thought he could hit Jesus because he dishonored the high priest. He thought that he was in some way speaking wrongly about him. Jesus said, hold up. Another time you just violated my whole plan. You violated due process. You don't get a chance to just hit me whenever you want to hit me. I didn't even do anything wrong you're going to find that this whole trial goes wrong. Everything about it is wrong. They are driven by passion. They're not driven 
by facts. So Jesus is saying, this is not right. Notice what they asked him about. They asked him about his disciples. What did he not talk about? His disciples. Why? Because Jesus said, guys, if you have a problem, you have a problem with me. Leave my boys alone. Do not touch them. I'm the guy you want. And right after this, he'll make five statements of I, 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 I. Why? He's drawing all the fire towards himself. He's saying, he even says, Father, I haven't lost one you gave me. I always defend my people. I always shield my people. So no, they're not going to get drug into this. The only one I let go was Judas Iscariot because he was not part of our team. But I protect my boys. Even in there, remember when everyone was going crazy and he was getting arrested, they all bailed out and ran. Jesus remained and took all the heat. This is going to happen all the way to the cross. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To protect us, right? I mean, he can't allow his children to be facing eternal torment. He cannot allow his children, even though they deserve it, he cannot allow his children to face the wrath of his father. So he stands there and takes all of it. As I've shared with you before, one of the most powerful um, scenes in the movie of The Passion of the Christ is when he's getting beaten and he falls down and he stands up again to take more beating. Why? Because he knows that the more he receives, the less you will have to receive. You know what I'm saying? How powerful is that? Man, that's the Jesus that we serve. But let's talk about the fact that he came to those that were his own and his own did not recognize him. His own did not appreciate him. His own did not receive him. What that means is that he was rejected by the Jewish nation. Why? They didn't want change. Why are we rejecting all of Jesus's movement in our life today? Because we don't want change. We like the way it is. If we have bondage in our life, we're cool with the way it is, and we don't want to pay the cost to get rid of it. When we have a limitation of the power of God moving in us, but it would require us to have more discipline to be more aligned with the Lord, we are not willing to pay the cost. When it comes down to the idea that God is trying to get you out of your comfort zone so that you will grow in understanding him more, that your love will expand for him more, and that we will begin to engage with him more, we are not willing to pay the cost because it's change. Jesus is always rejected because of change. What would have cost the Jewish nation to accept him? Because really, here's the weird part. We look at it backwards. Jesus is my hero. I want to be just like him in every way. I think he's the coolest ever. And I want to be that guy. I want to look from my eyes like he looks. I want someone to see him in me. I want to be able to love like he loves. I want to be able to move in power like he does. I want to be able to do everything that Jesus does. So I can't imagine why anybody would not want him. So why wouldn't the Jewish people have wanted him? Because it was a huge alteration of their entire system. It would take their whole power structure and flip it upside down. It means everybody had to surrender what they had and restart. And nobody wants to do that. Do you realize, let's make it personal. Do you realize that when you come to church, you're coming to church to learn? You are not coming to church to be reaffirmed on what you think. That's just not right. If you're not learning anything in church, either I'm a terrible teacher or you're a terrible student. You understand what I'm saying? 
And here's why. When I design these messages, here's what I'm doing. I'm stretching way out there. I'm having to grow and learn stuff I don't know every week. I'm grabbing nine commentaries for every message. If you know more than nine commentaries and me, you should be teaching yourself. You understand what I'm saying? And if I'm blowing up my paradigm, if I'm constantly growing and changing, shouldn't all of us, shouldn't the whole idea that we walk into church and go, man, that really messes with what I think that's going to bring change. That's the point. That's why we're here. And, and I guess my big challenge is that when someone comes up to me and they go, I disagree with that. I don't think that's right. Almost always I'll go, well, why do you think that? And they'll go, well, cause so-and-so taught, hold up. Was it in the Bible or did so-and-so teach? Because if you're arguing with me because you only listen to some other regurgitated message, that's not okay. How about we go back and we read scripture to where we go, wait, 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 maybe God is saying this is legit and we need to look at it, right? I'm just saying that we should always be in a learning posture. Doesn't mean that we should be in a, I believe everything you say, Pastor Lance. That's not the posture. You should filter and sift everything I say. What I'm saying is that we should always walk in here and wait for God to blow our paradigm. We should always walk in here and go, God, how do I realign with you? Whatever that means, whatever change that requires. You know what I'm saying? All right. Nobody does. Praise the Lord. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Everyone's like, I'm not agreeing with that. Get out of here. Now, take a look at this. It says, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl of the high priest who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in below in the courtyard and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Okay, a couple things you need to know. Number one, Mark's gospel account gives us the most striking details. Why is that important? Because who does Mark write for? Peter. Peter is about to tell his worst day in detail. Is that important? It's really important. Why? Because I believe that he owns this concept, which I try to own and I want you to own. You ready? Here's the concept. Please give people the real story of your life. If you only give a cleaned up, shiny version you're screwing people up because here's the problem. If you do not tell them rightly, they're going to assume that they're failures and that you're not. If you do not tell them both your victories and your defeats, they can't get traction off of that. We always have to tell it really how it is. That means that we're not plastic, but that also means that we're not the victim all the time. That there are times when Jesus has brought great victories and there's times when God has allowed us to walk in defeat. That's just how it goes. Our story should go something like this. You know, this one time uh, I'm talking and I'm, and I'm preaching and I'm talking about the power of God. And I said, you know what? Right now that pain doesn't need to be in your life. And bam, just like that, somebody was healed while I was preaching. Man, everybody's like, what? Dang, that was awesome. Praise the Lord. That's so good. Then I follow it with a story. There was this one time I was praying my guts out for this young child and there was everything I believe should be within God's will and nothing happened. Cricket, cricket, cricket. 
You understand what I'm saying? There's no other parts of the story. It's just... Okay, because that's reality. This one time I shared uh, my faith with somebody and they were like, I have never heard that before. And, and man, that's life changing. And if Jesus died for me, how am I to be saved right now? And I was able to lead them through the sinner's prayer and they came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Everyone goes, yeah, those are awesome. Remember that one time that I shared with my friend and he totally disconnected from me because he thought I was a psycho and didn't want anything to do with me. Okay. That's real life. Peter is about to have stories said of him in the book of Acts that go like this. His shadow would walk, would cover people and demons would be cast out by his shadow and sick people were healed by his shadow. Dude, you don't get cooler than that. If it's just like, dude, I just got to get in his shadow. I mean, that's crazy. You even had to touch Jesus's hem. Remember that? Peter's just like, just starts knocking people down while he's walking around. That's craziness. And everyone's going, oh, he's a superhero, right? And he's like, hey, you remember that one time that I denied my best friend three times and it crushed my spirit? I mean, why are we not telling all the story? Please tell an honest testimony. Well, how did that go for you? It was hard. I was free of this addiction. I was not of this one. You understand what I'm saying? It says this. Peter's in the courtyard, hanging out with who? The guards. Okay, we're about to talk about his failure. But this same thing applies to the whole walking on water story. We just go, hey, you remember when Peter walked on water? Yeah, well, then he doubted and sank. Okay, he's the only one that got out of the boat. Can we give credit where credit is due? Okay, where are the other disciples in the story? They already denied Christ and bailed out. So the fact that he's still in this, it's pretty awesome. All right? And so it says, and when the servants and officers had kindled a charcoal fire, now the reason why that's highlighted is that that's different than a wood fire. Wood fires create blaze and bright light. Charcoal fires are dim, which makes it harder to see. Peter's trying to hide, right? So that's kind of why that matters. Outside the middle of the courtyard of the wealthy home complex. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. It's a cold spring night, 2,500 feet above sea level. You're on a little mountain in Jerusalem. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And they sat down together. Peter sat down among them. Then the servant girl who was at the door, seeing him as he sat in the light, as dim as it was, and looking closely at him, said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, no, 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 I'm not. She's like, wait, this man also was with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know. I do not understand what you mean. I don't know him. Okay, that's a Jewish legal response. I do not know or have any knowledge of what you're talking about. He just flat out said no. And he was trying to shut her down. Now, didn't he know him? Of course he did. Is he lying? Yes, he is. Why? Because the cost went higher than he was willing to pay. What happens when a friend caves? What happens when you and I cave? When is the cost going to exceed what we perceive as the value? What really is he afraid of? Because here, this is what's super weird about Peter. He just tried to cut a guy's head off. 
Okay, remember, he was not aiming for the ear. It's not like he's such a, on guard, you know, and he can slice things. It's not like he's doing that. This is a straight out, yeah, trying to, trying to chop his head off. He missed and cut his ear off. And Jesus, what, blew off the dust, stuck it back on. Thank the Lord he did that because they were all would have been ticked off, right? If Peter was ready to take on the whole mob by himself, he's obviously not afraid of death, or is he? Isn't it interesting how our emotions go up and down? One day, Peter was ready to die for Jesus. A couple hours later, he was not. Man, we are such subjects to our emotions. Some of us have high-ranging emotion, and we're just all on fire, and then we're all cold. Huh, that's what he was like. It says, and a little later, the rooster crowed. And Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, his son-in-law, when Simon Peter went out into the gateway entrance that leads to the street. And another servant girl saw him standing and warming himself. These servant girls are all over the place, apparently. <laughs> and they're very, they're very insightful. <laughs> like little minions. You're like, hey, would you leave me alone? What is wrong with you? Another servant girl saw him standing and warming himself and again said to the bystanders, you also are one of them. Hey, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So they all said to him, yeah, you're also one of his disciples. But Peter again kept denying it with an oath. And he said, man, I am not. I don't know that guy. Okay. Did you know that there are two times that the cock crows, that the rooster crows, right? We all, have you all know that? Okay. Here's the other thing. What does that mean, the cock crows? You're like, uh, Lance, it means there's a little birdie, and a little birdie makes sounds. Okay, hold up. There are two totally different commentary accounts on what this means. Both could be legit. Honestly, I have no idea which one it is. I kind of favor the bird, but whatever. Okay, so your first option is a bird. Uh, it, that it literally is a rooster, that there was roosters hanging out, and there's a bunch of reasons why it may not be that. But this is, this is super funny. One of my favorite commentaries is the NICNT. It's a little bit more of a critical commentary. And they said a line that I don't think I'd ever expect. They said this, after 12 years of studying roosters in Jerusalem... <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> really? That's a thing? You're still studying roosters in Jerusalem. Uh, sir, what do you think about that? You know, you're interviewing them and they're just like, well, cock-a-doodle-doo, you know. <laughs> Here's the funny thing about how roosters work over there. And I have no idea why they didn't have any explanation or charts and data on the roosters. Is, is merely this. They sound off at 1230, 130, and 2.30, and then they go silent. That's so weird. What are you doing? They're obviously not trying to just get people up for the morning. What I think they're doing is going, I'm still awake. Are you? (laughs) Here I am still awake. You're like, dude, I get it. Just go to sleep, right? I don't know what, they're not signaling anything. But if that's the case, it's almost at hour intervals. You're going to find out in the story, things happen at hour intervals. So is it a bird? You're like, what else could it be? Okay, here's something weird. Rome is trying to keep peace over Jerusalem. They build a tower for their police force called the uh, Tower of Antonia, the Fortress of Anatonia. Um, In there, they build it higher than Jerusalem so you can look down into the courtyard and keep the peace. They change watch at 3.30 a.m. They sound a trumpet. Guess what the trumpet blast is called in uh, Latin? The cock crow. 
So what's a weird name? I wonder if they were also signaling each change of the watch and the trumpet would sound and that was the cock crow. And so Jesus was going before that alarm signals twice, you'll have denied me three times. Or is that just a coincidence? You understand what I'm saying? Those are very different options. Both can be legit. I have no idea. I tend to favor the bird. All right, we're moving on. (laughs) After a little while, after an interval of about an hour, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, man, this is a small world, (laughs) came up and asked, hey, wait a second. Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Trust me, I'd memorize your face right? The bystanders again insisted saying to Peter, yeah, certainly this man was with him for he too is a Galilean. You're one of them for your accent betrays you. But Peter again denied it. He began to invoke a curse on himself or Jesus and began to swear, man, I don't know this man that you're talking about. It's fascinating to me that Peter still hasn't run. He still hasn't run. He keeps getting busted and he still hasn't run. He'd even deny Jesus before he'd run. What kind of weird, twisted idea is this, right? And he starts to call down all kinds of things and he starts to call down curses. Now, here's what's really weird. You'll notice that the uh, ESV favors the version that says he called down curses on himself. Here's the problem with that. That could be true. He could have been like, you know, may God strike me if I'm lying, which of course he was. He shouldn't have done that either. Or more grammatically correct, check this out. In the Greek, the curses should have a direct object. It should say, call down curses on himself. It does not say that in Greek. That was added by the ESV. There is no direct object. If there's no direct object, that means it can't be Peter. It has to be someone else. Who's the next logical person for him to curse? Jesus. That's even more messed up. Why would you curse Christ to distance yourself from him and go, if I'm cursing him, clearly he's not my buddy. Is that what Peter did? Maybe. Hmm. Notice that they said your accent betrays you. The southern people in Israel were the educated. They were closer to Jerusalem. The northern people were more rural. They were known as the uneducated folk. They were the lazy ones in their minds. So to call someone a Galilean or a Nazarene or anything like that, those are all derogatory. Oh, that's where all those stupid people get all riled up and cause revolutions. That's what they've been saying this entire night. But notice they even triggered on his accent. They had an Aramaic way of talking that was slang and lazy. So Peter's linguistics were so poor, the minute he opens his mouth, they went, dude, you're totally from the north. You can't even talk right. And he got busted off that. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed a second time. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, how he could see him, I don't know. If it was from upstairs or he was being moved into the courtyard to be transferred or he's being moved into the courtyard to be beaten, somehow, someway, he caught Peter's eye. In Greek, it means a long, intense gaze. How long do you think that lasted for Peter? 
probably a lifetime. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord Jesus, how he had said to him prophetically before the rooster crows today twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down, went out, and wept bitterly. What caused him to snap? There's times when you're going through your life and you've been messing up a lot, but there's times when it all comes clear. And God's like, what are you doing? And all of a sudden, snap, you fall apart. What does it mean to weep bitterly? I think it means an awful lot of regret, embarrassment, shame, guilt. It all poured on him. Notice that he responds, if you know the rest of the story, responds very differently than Judas did. Both of them were super sad about what they did. One committed suicide, one did not. One was reinstated and became the head of the church. Crazy. So let me ask you this. What, if God is with us, y'all know that God's with us, right? Do you know that if you have the Holy Spirit within you, he's going everywhere you're going? How many places have you taken the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Think about all the places he's like, I don't want to eat there. <laughs> right? So when are you not willing to pay the cost? When, what aren't you willing to trade? What's off limits to God in your life? Where wouldn't you wear your Christian t-shirt? You understand what I'm saying? Maybe it's in your reputation. You don't want to talk about Jesus because someone's going to judge you and think that you're an idiot. Have you caved and denied your Lord by keeping your mouth shut because you were afraid of what people would think of you? What about your sin craving and addiction? You're willing to put Jesus on the back burner so you can feel better about yourself and you know full well he's not going to authorize it so you shut him down and do it anyway. Is it with laziness? No, I'm not going to that prayer meeting. No, I'm not going to church. No, I'm not going to a uh, missional community. No, I'm not going to see a mentor. No, I'm not going to... Because my time is my own, right? It's all about you, me. What about with our time and money? What about money? You know, we talk about how generous we are, and, and I do have to say this congregation is generous. Of course, I don't know what you kept. I only know what you gave. <laughs> and we could leave it here. We could leave it in this place that you feel right now. We could leave it in a place where you just feel like a loser, which indeed we are. But Jesus didn't leave it in this place. As a matter of fact, Jesus does come back to Peter and he talks to him. Doesn't even bring this up. He says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Do you remember this? And Peter's like, of course, Lord. What are you talking about? He's like, all right, just checking. Because if you love me, we're all good. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Yes, quit asking me that. You're freaking me out. <laughs> all right, then we're good. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Because if you love me, we're all right. Because here's the way that Jesus looks at it. Are we guilty of bailing on him? Yes. But he's bigger than our weakness. The Bible says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he refuses to leave this as the end of the story. Amen? 
is that he looks at you and goes, did you fail me? Yeah, but do you realize that when you're faithless, I'm still faithful? Do you realize that when you cave on me, I'm more mature than that and I don't walk away? Do you realize that I'm the one that can carry you through? Do you understand that I'm the one that picks you back up? Do you realize that I already knew you were going to blow it and I still died for you anyway? Do you understand that I am willing to go to the nth degree to make sure that you're safe? Do you realize that our Jesus is so loving? Do you realize that our Jesus is so great and mighty and powerful that he can go right over all of our weakness and failure? Do you realize that our Jesus loves us through our faithlessness? Here's what we're going to do as we close. We're going to renew our loyalty to Jesus Christ. If you have a loyalty to Jesus Christ. So I'm hoping that everyone here is able to pray this prayer along with me. Because what I'm going to pray is a a pledge of allegiance to Christ afresh. But there's going to be some of us where this is more personal to you. Because God over the last week or over the last month has been all over your case about how much you're bailing on him. And you know this is very, very personal. If that is you, while I pray, the minute I start to pray, and we're going to have everyone kind of just get into a prayer posture of closing their eyes. The minute I start to pray, I want you to stand and go, God, I get it. I acknowledge that you're calling me on this. And I've got to do better. You're absolutely right. For the rest of us, you can remain seated and just pray in your heart because all of us, if you do love your Lord, there's nothing wrong with committing yourself to him every single day. And right now, things are a little bit more clear, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we get it. We hear you. And you're absolutely right. We are not where we need to be. That, Lord, there are so many times we have pulled back. We have compromised. We have caved. We have shut our mouth. Or we've changed the conversation because we were embarrassed of you. Oh, Father, we're so sorry. Jesus, we're so sorry. Holy Spirit, we have dishonored you. We pray right now that your beautiful love and forgiveness would not only wash over us and cleanse us from the guilt and the shame and the condemnation, but, Lord, that your Spirit would come in and make us mighty so that we might train and discipline differently so that next time the trial comes up, we would face it straight on, walk right through, and glory would rise. That in that moment, Jesus, you went through a trial. Peter went through a trial. He bailed. You didn't. Oh, God, we don't want to bail. We don't want to give up on you. We don't want to say that we don't know you. We don't want to shy away. We don't want to let our shyness shut us down. We don't want our insecurity to define our identity. We don't want, God, the enemy to win and allow lies to be perpetuated. God, we want to be able to stand for you. We want to be able to stand for truth. We want to be able to stand and say that we pledge allegiance to you, Jesus. That you are the mighty one. That we march under your banner. That we wear your coat of arms. That we are your ambassador. That we are your emissary. That we are your children. That we are your sons and daughters. That we will not shrink back. That no matter what the cost is, it is worth it to pay it.
because the value is too high. Jesus, you are our everything. Jesus, you are the mighty King of kings and Lord of lords. And we dedicate ourselves to you afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week.